Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And on today's episode, we have a special guest. Let's tune in. Me and Bo here, so we're going to have a pretty chill introduction, as per the usual. Uh, <laughs> but welcome to Reason for Hope. Uh, I don't even remember the different places people can go. <laughs> I just love it. <laughs> Me and Bo are, you know, we got allergies going. We're a little bit of a mess. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if this is Bo and Peter or Ren and Stimpy. <laughs> But welcome to A Reason for Hope. We're so stoked that you can be joining us today on the program. Um, You can uh, certainly ask your questions uh, uh, to us on A Reason for Hope at questionsforhope at gmail.com, questionsforhope at gmail.com. A Reason for Hope is is usually hosted by the Richards, Scott and Sean Richards, but today they got us. They got us. They're stuck with us. (laughs) They're stuck with us. Mediocrity is everywhere. (laughs) But uh, it's really fun to be on the show. Always with you, Peter. It's always a blast. And uh, we get to answer questions on the Bible, which is awesome. That's what we enjoy doing. The Bible says to, you know, have a reason for the hope that is within us and, um, we do our best to answer every question uh, to the best of our knowledge. Even though there's a lot of questions, the Bible's kind of big, and there's a lot of scriptures. Yeah. So uh, we don't know every answer, but we certainly do our best to uh, to give an answer to people. Um, so you guys can check us out as a, at A Reason for Hope. You can also go to our Facebook page, Calvary Christian Fellowship on Facebook, or A Reason for Hope on YouTube. And you're probably watching it somewhere around there, uh, either on YouTube or Facebook, or you might be on our website. And we'll check that out, too, that platform as well, in case that you're asking a question um, uh, on that platform. So we're going to check those different platforms, Facebook, YouTube, the website, the email, um, all throughout the show to see uh, what questions you guys have. It always takes a few minutes for us Uh, to get the streaming going and uh, up and running. So I had a little note. First, I just want to apologize to my wonderful Devo audience out there. I do a morning (laughs) devotion every morning, but this morning I was up in Phoenix, so I wasn't able to get on there and do the devotion, which is always a little bit of a bummer. Uh, We have such a wonderful turnout and a great community in the morning that uh, is online. and It's really wonderful. A lot of wonderful prayer and just you know, you could tell people really love one another in the uh, comment corner of uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship's Facebook. So you can always check out my devotion online at Calvary Christian Fellowship, the Facebook page, every morning, Monday through Friday at 9 o'clock a.m. That's when I usually go live. Um, So, you know, I, I definitely was bummed I wasn't able to get on that this morning. But I was looking over your book today, the second book that you wrote, um, Fellowship of Sufferings. And um, I know that you're going to be launching a new website pretty soon that's kind of based off of that and some of your, and your other book as well. And, um, and that's exciting. And, uh, but uh, I also thought, like, you know, what has been some of the fruit of kind of, you know, since it's been out now for about six months, right? A year. It's actually going to be a year in May. Wow. God, that went quick. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, but w- what kind of has been some of that fruit that you've seen? Yeah, well, uh, it's actually been really cool. I've had the opportunity to speak at quite a few churches now. Uh, I've spoke at U City down in Tucson. I've gone to Santa Cruz. I've gone to Las Cruces. I've gone to Silver City, uh, up in Albuquerque on a couple different uh, radio shows and podcasts. It's been just a huge blast to be able to do this, to interact with a lot of other people. And it's been a lot of fun. It's been very edifying for me to be able to share this message and to see how it hits people. Yeah. Because sometimes, you know, I'm I'm sure you're the same way when you write a book Mm -hmm. and you put it out there, there's always this fear of like, what if I'm totally wrong? You know, like what if all this stuff that I'm talking about is just so off and I'm going to get all this like criticism and people are going to be like, that was so wrong. And what you put in there, just doesn't make any sense. Like you always have a little bit of nervousness or maybe that's just me cause I'm insecure. But, uh, yeah, I, I totally was like that. And being able to go out and speak and to get the response from people has been really cool to just have that confirmation. And I haven't had any negative feedback from the book yet. You know, it's still, right. it's only a year old. I'm Which sure I'm going to get some, uh, coming up soon, but at any rate, it's just been really, really cool. I've gotten to also counsel a lot of people from all these various locations that I've been to, yeah. which has been good. But obviously, the, because of the subject matter, uh, I'm talking about some really serious issues. For those of you guys who haven't read it or heard about it, it is called Fellowship Suffering, and it deals with the topics of trauma and the resources that we have in Christ and in a Christian community. So it's, uh, like I said, just brought up a lot of stuff. One of the things that it's brought up, which I think is really cool, and I wanted to talk to you about, because I think you would have some good insight running our college ministry. Uh, is, uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'm running anything. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, basically when I wrote the book, I wrote it from the perspective that I was coming from. Uh, I'm coming from a perspective where I have a, a dad who's from the baby boomer generation. Yeah, uh, I'm coming from more of a conservative Christian background from uh, the military. And what I was most writing about mm-hmm. is that kind of culture. And the difficulty of that culture when it comes to trauma is they have a difficulty of being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So the majority of people from that generation or that background, when it comes to traumatic events, They're just very ashamed of them. They don't want to talk about them. They just want to forget that any of these things are happening, and they don't want to uh, actually respond to these things and how much they're hurting them. Mm. So that's my background. That's what I was dealing with. But I do have a section of my book. It's very small, and now I wish I made it bigger. Maybe for the second edition I'll make it bigger, Mm -hmm. uh, where I address the modern-day generation because the modern-day generation actually doesn't struggle like that. Uh, those of you guys from the older generation, you might be a little bit concerned or worried because of how crazy exposed your kids might be, right? They post everything online. They're, they're trying to make everything public. Yeah. They almost don't have any type of private lives or private things that occur. They just uh, broadcast everything. Now, there is a level of touch-up, right? When people post things online, they do touch it up. They make it look the way they want. But what I realized is that this generation doesn't really struggle too much with being vulnerable. What they struggle with is they find some sort of a cultural validation, security, and identity through suffering. So in other words, through victim status, they actually find a lot of community and they find a lot of stability. And so there's like a push 
in our culture to become identified with a victim group. This is why around 40% of Generation Z identifies with LGBTQ. Those are huge numbers. In baby boomer generation, it's 0.08 or something like that (laughs) of baby boomers identifying the LGBTQ community. Zoomers, it's like some polls have it at 40%. Some polls have it at 25%. But regardless, it's like at least a quarter of them, which is radical. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like there's this idea of I want to be in a victim group. I want to be in this status where people look at me as someone who's been victimized and that's where they're getting their stability. And that's equally difficult to deal with. Have you noticed that in your ministry as well? Um, you mean with Running Light Ministries? Running Light or, or any ministry? of your pastoral ministries? You know, um, you know, I haven't run into too much of that actually in like uh, a, the tw- 20s group or young people's group. Um, um, it still feels somewhat fringe. You know, is, is you know that kind of mentality, yeah. um, and maybe it's just because you know we are in a strong you know evangelical uh, community right. within the church here at Calvary. And you guys talk, we talk about that, right? There's subcultures, yeah, right. So when we say like Generation Z, it's not like mm-hmm. this one homogenous like blob. Right. Know, there's obviously many different subcultures within that group. Yeah. So there's definitely going to be a huge difference between uh, a Generation Z kid who's grown up in a strong Christian conservative home mm-hmm. versus the one who grows up kind of like you did in yeah. Simi Valley with more liberal parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, so I haven't, I haven't seen much of it, um, you know, but, uh, but the, the main thing is that you're seeing some fruit from the book. Yeah. You know, the passage is taken from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 10, right? Mm. Uh, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Right. So your whole point is really to make this idea that sharing in his sufferings is not a bad thing. Right. That, you know, when you look at trauma, regardless if you look at it from the more older generation view of trauma, something to be ashamed of, Mm -hmm. where Paul looks at it and he says, well, we serve a God who is traumatized. Mm -hmm. You know, we serve a God who is stripped naked, beaten to a bloody pulp and crucified in one of the most humiliating ways possible. Mm -hmm. So when you suffer, when you undergo trauma, there's actually an intimacy you experience with your Lord, you know, uh, a Lord who did, who was acquainted with grief a man of sorrows, as Isaiah 53 puts it. So yeah. uh, Paul sees it as like, no, there's nothing really to be inherently ashamed about, meaning that these traumatic or horrible things didn't happen to you because you're less than or because you're damaged or because you're a horrible person. So it's nothing really to be ashamed of in and of itself, but it's something that can actually lead to positive growth, just as Jesus aimed or fashioned his suffering into a tool of salvation Paul sees like, oh, he could fashion my suffering into a tool of intimacy with him and actually strength towards others, which he talks about in Colossians chapter 1, where he says that he fills up with joy. He fills up in his flesh the sufferings that are lacking in the sufferings of Christ. So Mm. uh, really radical for the sake of the body, for the sake of the elect. Yeah, and if anything, I see a lot of young people really wanting to follow Christ in that path. 
You know, they want to follow Christ in that fellowship, knowing his sufferings, you know, to know Christ even more, to know the greatness of of God in that way. And that's like the kind of balance. So I think that younger people would be more ready to hear that, that like, hey, your suffering is not something to be ashamed or go away from. But what they would have to fight, and this is more cultural, and again, I've, I've only seen it in the last year as I've been doing counseling, Mm -hmm. seeing the counseling of especially people and people in the younger generation where they're willing to admit that they've been traumatized, but they almost cling to it, Mm -hmm. right? They don't want to be healed. They don't actually want to grow as a result of what they've suffered. They almost see it as like a badge of honor of like this bad thing has happened to me. So therefore I have this diagnosable mental disorder and therefore you can't actually call out or criticize any of my behavior hmm. because of my lived experience. Right. Right. So th- there's that balance of like, how do you see, like, did Jesus see the cross as all good? No. It says in Hebrews 12 that he endured the cross, despising its shame. Right. There's, yeah. there was a negativity to being crucified, but he fashioned it into something positive. Hmm. So in the same way, it's like, I need to see that my suffering is not good, right? It's not good. The things that happened to me, but God can fashion it into something that's good. Mm. So I don't have to be ashamed of it. I can talk about it. I can commune with others regarding suffering and pain, and that can bring me closer to them and closer to God. Yeah, on our Facebook comment corner, John says, uh, Hey, Peter, it sounds a lot like Psalm 41 through 2, which says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and heard my cry. Love that song, worship song, by the way. He lifted Mm. me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, he set my feet upon a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth. Yeah. So. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. That, that God elevates us. He, he meets us in our suffering. Hmm. Um, I, lo- I love how Chuck Smith talked about it because when he talked about the healings of Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, Jesus came from that culture where people were just like, man, if you're suffering, there's something wrong with you. Uh-huh. And Jesus would like approach the people who were hurting. Like those are the people who you would always go to. And there's that cool passage where there's a guy with a withered hand hanging out in the temple, mm-hmm. and he's in the background, he's in the side. And the Pharisees, it says that they put him there as a trap. So they knew about Jesus. What did they know about Jesus? He's going to gravitate towards the broken, mm-hmm. right? They knew Jesus is going right at that guy. And, he, and Chuck made the, the comment where he's like, I feel like the Pharisees knew Jesus better than we do mm-hmm. sometimes. Where do we see Jesus as someone who gravitates towards the broken or do we see Jesus as someone who likes to glad hand the people who are prospering? Yeah. And uh, that's a very different perspective of Christ. Mm. Amen. So cool. I'm glad there's some awesome fruit with the book. You can always check out the book at Amazon and purchase it there. Fellowship of Sufferings by Peter Martin. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a couple books. I wrote a book back in 2007, Porn and a Pastor, that's that's still up there yeah. uh, in Amazon. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The title is that. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, and I've been I've been massaging another book for years right. now. Right, and, and I've it, read through it. Yeah, it keeps good. it keeps growing. And because um, yeah. your your first book is more of like a cultural book. Yes, it's just helping people understand like the porn culture yeah. in your generation. Yeah, uh, this one is more I would say Bible heavy. It's mm-hmm. more theology heavy, yeah. which is good. I think it's really cool. It's kind of answering uh, all the cultural questions now. Right. Right. It's like a sequel. Yeah, it's, it's like, like a, a sequel. Yeah. It's like, let's take all the cultural issues regarding sex and sex and technology, sex and economics, um, all these topics, you know, and uh, and then putting it into a biblical 
uh, you know, pat framework, right. you know, so to speak. Um, so it's been fun. It's been a, it's been great. Um, so we got a question. If Adam did not sin and pass the test, could any other of his descendants have sinned or start the fall? That's from Kurt. And I'm going to say hypotheticals. I love these questions. Hypotheticals, man. Yeah. They're awesome. <laughs> yeah. No, I like hypotheticals as well. I mean, they're interesting. We can we can kind of deliberate on them and yep. postulate, but we can't be dogmatic. We can't say like, oh, for sure. Yeah. But uh, I'll give my answer, and then I'm curious to hear yours, see if you differ with me. Yeah. So my personal thought is that it wasn't a test. So when God put the tree in the middle, midst of the garden, it's not like he was testing Adam. It's not like he was like, ooh, let's see if he really loves me or really cares about me. It was providing Adam with the capacity to choose. Mm-hmm. So in other words, God wanted a loving relationship with us, and love constitutes or necessitates choice. Mm-hmm. If there's no choice within love— then it's not love, it's coercion. So God provides a choice for mankind, and Adam uh, chooses to go apart from God. That's, yeah. the, that's the fall. Uh, I don't think that Adam and Eve could have, quote-unquote, passed the test. I think that the way that God designed it and designed us, there was always going to be that, uh, that check inside of our hearts that, really, that pondered the idea of, is God really good? Is this really the best possible way? Could we have something better? So I, I agree. If if Adam wouldn't have done it, then one of his kids certainly would have. Uh, the way that God designed it, though, that would have actually been really bad news for us. Because if one of the descendants of Adam were to fall and not Adam himself, then actually what you would have is you would have two lines. You would have that kid's lines that are fallen, and then you would have a righteous line coming from Adam, and then each individual kid that comes from Adam would then also be presented with the choice to fall out of Eden, and then they might fall, and it, was, it would be really kind of crazy. So the way that God did it is actually the best possible world, in my opinion, because it enables one Savior for all of man, and that's the argument of Paul in well, Romans 5. And let me, let me ask you and, and kind of take that, kind of run with it. You know, in the book of Romans in chapter 8, it talks about God subjecting all things to futility. Right. It's a really interesting passage, um, and let me see if I can find it real quick. Um, uh, yes, right here. Um, for the creation was subjected to frustration or futility, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Right. Right? Well, the will of the one who subjected it must be God. Right. Um, so God subjected all things to futility. Hmm. Um, but it says, it says um, in hope. Hmm. So it's a really interesting passage. Right. Because when, when I hear you talk about, okay, God... You know, it's not a test. God has uh, established a choice. Right. And that Adam really, you know, you know, was going to fail. Right. Um, you know, um, that's how you kind of put it. It sounded like, right. you know, that God was going to fail. It, it sounds very similar to this idea that God subjected all things to futility in right. hope. Right. And, and I guess I guess the, the writers of the New Testament are Paul in the book of Corinthians picks up on this hope and the idea that um, through one man, or it's in Romans, through Romans five, one, yeah. yeah, through one person, sin enters the world. Right. And so there's this headship of the sinful nature. Right. So we all have a sinful nature from the head of humanity, if right. you will, right, Adam. Right. And then 
and then and then because we are under his headship we also could be now under the headship of the one who gives life right 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 and he talks about that through one man death reigned uh through one man life came right you know and and so that that seems to hint at me of that hope right that everything was subjected to futility in hope right you know um but does does that Romans eight kind of fit into some of your thinking along with what happened in the garden? Yeah, I think so. So like um, you know, William Lane Craig makes this point where he talks about the concept of God's creation. Mm-hmm. And because we believe that God is good and God is all powerful, that means that whatever world he creates must be the best possible one. Because if there's a better possible world, meaning if there's a better reality out there that could exist in the ether somewhere, then God, who is all-powerful, could have created it. And if he didn't, that means he's not all good. He might be kind of good, but he's not all good unless he creates the best possible world. So Paul is arguing from that perspective of God subjecting the creation to futility had to incorporate some sort of a hope. There is some sort of a good purpose within it otherwise god wouldn't have done it yeah and now some cult groups take this and kind of run with it and go a real take now stretch this idea Hmm. uh, because they go oh there's hope in the fall so the so the fall was good right like mormons yeah right and then they take it to oh it was a it was a necessary evil if you will it was was the right thing to do i've even read that kind of quote Right. From uh, um, Coke Newell, who right. was a spokesperson for the Mormon Church out of Utah Latter Day Saints, right. where you know it was it was a good thing yeah. <laughs> that they partook and and the fall happened. Right, it it began the process of you know the trial on the earth, this trial period, and then their their in a sense uh, progress to godhood. Right. You know, so so the the easiest way I could put it, you know, and uh, you parents out there might be able to understand this, you know, trying to raise kids that are going to make right decisions Uh, as a parent, especially a parent who's made a lot of bad decisions. You know, you could teach your kids by saying like, hey, don't go down these paths because I've gone down them and I know for a certainty they don't work. Mm. And the hope that you have as a parent is that the child listens to you, that they're they trust you enough as a parent to say, I don't need to test these things. I know and I believe my dad when he tells me that they're bad for me. So I'm just not going to do them. I'm never going to walk down that path because I trust him so inherently that I don't need to try it for myself. That's the hope you have as a parent. But if the kid decides to make your same mistakes, which they probably will, right? They probably will. They probably might. The good that comes from it, it's not good. But the good that comes from it is a confidence in their trust of you. So meaning that once they come to the other side, they could say, oh, my dad was right. right? He, he warned me that if I tried this, it would lead to these types of consequences. Mm-hmm. I tried it. It led me to those consequences. So now I know my dad wasn't just some weirdo who was making up rules for his own benefit. Like he really knew what he was talking about. Yeah. So it can actually, instead of just him believing you, based on sheer faith, meaning I'm just going to trust my dad implicitly without testing him. Uh, That's good. But in a way, there is a different kind of good that comes from belief with certainty. 
saying like, now I'm certain that my dad is trustworthy because I tried it for myself and I know he's right. This is God. If we implicitly trusted God from the beginning and never fell, that would be great. But like I said, there would always be this thought in the back of our minds of, but is it really that good? Is God really that good? Because we've never tested anything else. We've never tried anything else. Uh, so it, it was bad that we fell, but the different good that comes with it is a completely authenticated and confident belief that we know that we know that we know that God is good and no good apart from him exists, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, if it could, then we would be able to, if, if there was a good apart from God that existed in this world, humanity would have found it by now. Right. We've we've existed for thousands of years. We've created all sorts of different philosophies, worldviews, religions, political structures, governments, uh, you know, societies. No, Peter, and- utopia. <laughs> There's a utopia out yeah. there. We just we just haven't reached hard enough. That's right. I was listening to one commentator on YouTube and he was saying that. He was like, we I know just, you mentioned that last yeah, night. We just, we just haven't reached it enough. You know, we just got to keep going, keep trying, keep right. attempting. It's like, keep going, bro. Yeah. But I don't know if it's going to go well. So now we have this absolute certainty of like, oh, yeah. yes, those who are willing to see the obvious truth can look at it and say, obviously, God is good. And obviously, man apart from God cannot produce the ultimate good. We just mm-hmm. can't. Can we produce some good? Of course we can. Right. I'm not going to look at the societies that exist on the earth and say they're all bad. Mm -hmm. There are elements of good within all of them. But man apart from God cannot create ultimate good. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole point. Yeah. So uh, someone wanted to follow up on your book a little bit and say, why do you think the older generation is ashamed of the trauma they have experienced? Hmm. What's your take on that? Yeah, no, uh, very good question. And it actually does kind of fit into the cultural expectations. So in other words, there was every culture has their moral systems and their aspirational systems. Mm-hmm. So when that culture looked at it, if you look at the, the early 20s, 30s, 40s, that kind of time period, uh, you have a lot of various issues that existed within the world. You had, you're coming out of World War One in you know, the 1914s, 1915s. Then you had the Great Depression. Then you had the rise of Hitler. Then you had the rise of Stalin. You, know, you have all these various things happening on the world stage. And so the main virtue that was preached was resilience. We need to be able to withstand and be resilient towards the things that are happening around us. And because of that, that generation was very resilient. The mistake that they made was thinking, oh, resilience means I'm unaffected by the things that are happening to me. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean I'm moved and I'm able to, again, turn the trauma into something good. It means I'm unmoved by everything that happens to me. That's what strength looks like. And then you have, you know, you watch movies from back in the day. Think about guys like Humphrey Bogart, John Wayne. Right. Roy Rogers. You have these cowboys. You have these, you know, these uh, tough guys that are within these films. And what they're portraying is they're portraying a persona of someone who's unmoved by the circumstances that are happening. They're stalwart. They just look straight forward and they do what needs to be done simply because it needs to be done. That's why people make the statement. Men were men back then. Mm. Now, there's there's a truth there, meaning that masculinity was actually glorified to a certain perspective. And there's a good there. The negative is, is once again, thinking that the only way to get there is to be unmoved. So they incorporated more of a stoic philosophy Hmm. when it came to pain and suffering. 
I, I always tell people this, like in the military, they train us to do something similar because, you know, we have to go out there and you, you have young guys. Well, I deployed the first time when I was 19 years old, right? So 19 years old going over to Afghanistan. You were an old man. I know. <laughs> I, know. I was pretty dang old. <laughs> That's right. <Yeah. laughs> I mean, if a man lives till 35, yeah. dude, he's like an old geezer. <laughs> so I was middle-aged at that point. Already. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going out at 19, and you, you have to inculcate in these 19-year-olds a capacity to take life and to lay down their life at a very young age. And that's very difficult to do. So what they, they help us do is they help us to do the John Wayne thing, be immoved by it, yeah. right? Face your death, face your mortality and face the mortality of your enemy fearlessly, right? Go at it without blinking and without quivering. You know, that was, that was the idea that was drilled into us. And there are various ways that they did that. But again, it's, it's not deal with it, deal with the suffering, deal with the trauma, allow it to shape you, but harness it to shape you in a positive way. It's don't let it touch you. Don't let it affect you. And if it does affect you, don't let it show. Right? Which is really interesting because we read the Psalms, and I think it was John who brought up Psalm 40 mm-hmm. on the comment corner. Thanks a lot, John, for that, by the way, the second reference to it already. Um, but, you know, you read the Psalms, and, and you read so much emotion right? and so much, you know, just weakness. And, it's because David frailty. was a sissy. That's so. right. <laughs> That's right. And you know what? Jesus was a sissy. <laughs> That's right. Because he cried. We all were, <laughs> man. Ah, this book's about wimps. Yeah. <laughs> And that, yeah, and that yeah. again shows it. You're so right. You mm-hmm. know, there's so much emotional uh, yeah. vulnerability right. in the text of Scripture. And yeah. these are not coming from girly men. You know, these are coming from tough dudes like David, yeah. who was a warrior, and from Jesus. And it shows us a different perspective that possibly you can have masculinity and toughness that doesn't come apart from emotional vulnerability, but it comes through it. Yeah. So the mistake that we can make, I think, in our culture today— I think we're going the opposite direction uh, of more embracing the feminine traits without the masculine traits of saying emotional vulnerability is where we stop. And so there's this idea, again, I brought it up in the beginning of the show, of people being emotionally vulnerable but not becoming steeled to it. In other words, they're going through it, but they never get to the end of it. They remain emotionally fragile for the rest of their lives, where what you see, again, in scriptures is there is this time, right, Ecclesiastes, there's a time to grieve, there's a time to mourn, there's a time to rejoice, mm-hmm. there's a time to do all the things under the sun. So it's not that I'm this uh, John Wayne stoic individual where nothing's affecting me, but I allow them to affect me, and then I allow them to move me, but I trust God's hands to move me in a more positive way. So this is actually more where your generation comes in. The boomers are the effect of that. And then the Gen X are effect of the boomers, where what you had is you had all these stoic parents that are not emotionally vulnerable with their kids. Mm-hmm. And then you have the whole FU generations come out of that saying like, man, we're not going to give into the, the hege- hegemony, man. Yeah. We're not going to give into the, the man and the structure and the hierarchy because this is all just fake. They just saw a bunch of hypocrisy mm-hmm. where people were putting on a facade of goodness, but the kids were able to see behind the mask. They were able to see the fragility and the insecurity of their dads. If their dad stuck around, they were able to see the effect it had on their moms, that, that kind of stoic 
masculinity and how it affected the mom, how it affected the kids. And so they're like, no, we're not going that direction. This is stupid. And then you have the free love movement, you know, and that moves into the Gen X. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Cool cultural talks. Yeah. And we love that. Uh, Casey Rowe asks, animals didn't suffer until after the fall, right? And we were vegetarians, right? I just want to be sure. Um, that's what we believe. There are different Christians who think otherwise. I don't think it really jives with the text. Mm-hmm. It does seem like from the Romans 8 passage that we just read that God subjected the creation to futility after the fall. So the futility references suffering and death. And what he's saying is that post-fall, what happened is Adam and Eve became the heads of all the creation. And so when they fell, they led the creation into a fallen state, which would include suffering and pain. And a little bit of a, a change to your wording, we weren't vegetarians because vegetables are living things. And in order to eat a vegetable, you do have to kill a living thing. You are eating the root system or something like that of that particular plant. You are killing it in order that you can be nourished. And that's that's the whole system. And, and you and I talk about that a lot where people are like, man, I don't like the idea of sacrifice. It's so bloody in the Old Testament. It's like, what would you eat for lunch? You know, like you think yeah. it's so bloody. What would you eat for lunch? Yeah, I'm sure you ate an animal. I'm sure there was a lot of blood going on so you could feed your mouth, you know, so you could have a little bit of sustenance in your life. That's the way that God set it up, that man lives through the death of the creation. And that system is set up so that we can understand the cross, so we can understand that it is right that one man takes the place of another. Why? Because the whole of creation is suffering for you. Right. The creation die, suffers and dies so that we might live. That's the whole principle mm. in the garden. What we see is they ate fruit. Fruit is the only thing that exists on this earth that when you eat it, you're actually not killing anything. Fruit is actually the reproduction of plants. Right. They implant their seeds within the fruit. And when you eat the fruit. You actually are spreading the seed through your digestive system. That's literally what's happening. Right. So um, that's that's not bad for the plant. It's actually good for the plant that you eat the fruit. So in that garden, that's what we ate. Yeah, that's a neat point, right? You're saying that the, like the potato has to get uprooted. Right. Right? It has to be killed. Right, but the fruit, not necessarily. Right, the tree remains, but the seed, the offspring of the tree actually is what you're eating. Yeah. And then when you digest it, it's transported somewhere else. Mm. So it, that's actually good for the tree. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. I, I, I thought of an image of partaking of Christ and digesting Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Take of <laughs> you me. Know? Yeah. yeah. Take of me. And then, you know, of course, spreading Jesus yeah. <laughs> around, you know, the seed around. That's so right. that's what I was thinking when you were sharing that, that was kind of cool. Um, okay, let's jump over to our YouTube page. Nice. Enough of that Facebook yeah, stuff. Yeah, I know. We're going, to, we're going to YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're on YouTube. So all the YouTube people are like, oh, thank you, finally. <laughs> so, okay, all seriousness. Uh, this is from our co-host, uh, Sean Richards. How did the prophet Jeremiah die? And I didn't know. When, he, hmm. when I read that, I go, man, I don't know how yeah. Jeremiah died. I've heard that he was uh, ended up in Egypt or something like that. Um, so it, it never explicitly tells us in the scriptures because obviously he's writing the book, so he right. can't write how he died. <laughs> you know, right, right. it just can't he's happen. Like, I died yesterday. <laughs> You're like, wow, that's awesome. <laughs> so the book kind of ends in a cliffhanger. If you've ever read the book of Jeremiah, it's my favorite book. Mm-hmm. And it actually, the story of Jeremiah abruptly ends 
And then the last couple chapters of Jeremiah are just some last prophecies that he made. So actually, yeah. they have nothing to do with his story. They just have to do with Israel. Yeah, as a the nation. narrative ends a couple chapters before the end. That's right. And the where the narrative ends is there are there's a there's a remnant. There's a group of Israelites that come back into the land after Babylon comes in and just crushes the rebellion. Mm-hmm. And Jeremiah is a part of this kind of new governmental system that's set up until a guy named Ishmael comes in and murders the governor, and they try to hunt him down, he gets away, and the remaining Israelites are afraid. They're like, dude, if we stay here, Nebuchadnezzar's going to think that we're a part of that rebellion that killed his governor, governor, so let's get out of here. Let's go to Egypt. And Jeremiah prays. He asks God, what should we do? And God says, you should stay where you're at. If you stay where you're at, Nebuchadnezzar will believe you that you're not a part of the rebellion. If you flee, though, he will think that you're a part of the rebellion. He'll hunt you down and he'll kill you. Mm. And so Jeremiah tells them, like, hey, this is what's going to happen. They're like, you're lying. And they basically tie him up and they take him forcibly to Egypt. And that's where the book ends. Uh, There is some history that goes around in Israel. They believe what happened to Jeremiah. Whether this is true or not, I think it's, it's likely that Jeremiah basically put up such a fuss when he was in Egypt that they eventually just killed him. So they, they actually murdered him before Nebuchadnezzar caught up to them. Yeah. And that Nebuchadnezzar did, obviously God prophesied that was going to happen. Nebuchadnezzar does catch up to these guys and kills them. Mm. So Kind of a tragic ending. You know? Tragic. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, any, any resources on that ending uh, that you can think of? Is it anybody like Eusebius or any of those guys and kind of the church, what's called the church fathers or any of their writings? Or I was thinking maybe um, like it, Josephus it, talked about it. Yeah. I'm sure. And um, <clears throat> um, God, the book on martyrs. Um, Fox's book. Fox's martyrs. book of martyrs. I didn't know if that had anything to do with uh, some of that, but um, <clears throat> might be something to look up and yeah, check out. So we're on the YouTube uh, comment corner right now. Remember, you can always email us too at questionsforhope at gmail.com, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Um, your host, Bo, or co-host, Bo, and I'm with Peter Martin, and we're stoked to be with you. So, okay, let's get into another question here. Um, uh, let's see, there's a bunch, some Adam and Eve questions. Um is human freedom the highest form of good that God gave? Uh, is it one of God's greatest gifts? Um, human freedom is very important, uh, but it's not the greatest gift. So human freedom is a component of God's actual greatest gift, which is a loving relationship with him. That's the greatest gift of God. In other words, since God is the greatest good in the universe, the greatest thing he can give us is himself. And in order to enter into a loving relationship with God, which is what he offers us, we have to have free will in order to do that. So I would say that free will is a necessary component to a relation, a loving relationship with God, but it's not the best gift. It's just a component of it. Mm, okay. Um uh, is it true that the opposite of faith is certainty? No. Uh, no, it's not. So um, faith in and of itself doesn't actually have an opposite. So I, I guess if you were to say th- that there's like a lack of faith, but that's not an opposite. That's just a lack, right? Yeah. So um, 
faith from Christianity's perspective is what's called a virtue. And virtues are interesting in that they don't actually have opposites. They have negations, but they don't have opposites. What uh, Aristotle said, and C.S. Lewis really believed this, and I think a lot of the biblical authors believe this as well, is that every virtue doesn't actually have an opposite, but they do have two vices that oppose the virtue. So let's use courage as an example. If you have too little courage, you're a coward. But cowardice isn't actually the opposite of courageousness. It's just a lack of courage. Uh, you have too much courage, though, and you're reckless and indifferent to your, the consequences that you're creating. Faith is the same way. If you have too little faith, then you're faithless. You, you just, you're untrusting. You're uh, someone who doesn't have a lot of confidence in anything. And by the way, the word confident in Latin is con fide. Con meaning with. Yeah. Those of you guys who are Spanish would know that. Yep. Uh, con meaning with and fide meaning faith. So confident actually just means with faith. It means that I trust in something. You're never going to have absolute certainty about anything. Uh, Rene Descartes, who's a very famous philosopher, he once said, I think, therefore I am. And what he was trying to prove is he was trying to prove, are there any things that we can know in reality for a certainty? Now, he actually stops there. That's the only thing that we could actually know for certainty. I think, therefore I am. You have existence. What mode does that existence take? I have no idea because I can't prove it. If, if someone said to me, you're actually just a brain inside of a tube right now that's being forced to live out this fantasy, I can't disprove you because I have I no— can. I can. No, <laughs> I can get outside of myself yeah. <laughs> and then put myself under a microscope. <laughs> so there's absolutely no way to prove anything beyond self-existence which is kind of crazy. So everything that we do carries a measure of faith. You have to believe in something based on the relevant evidence that you have surrounding you. And that's what Descartes said. And he said the fundamental belief that enables you to actually trust in anything is a belief in a God that holds the universe together. In other, in other words, there has to be a logic to the universe given by a lawgiver. And that was his point. I, I agree with him. Now, so if you have too much, if you have too little faith, you're a skeptic, you are faithless, you are untrusting, that kind of thing. But if you have too much faith, you're naive, right? You're gullible, you're easily swindled, right? So if I give too much trust to somebody without enough evidence, now I'm a gullible individual I'm gonna be taken advantage of. So faith being a virtue, what it means is giving the requisite amount of trust towards the requisite amount of information. It sounds like faith, what makes faith a greater faith than other faiths is the object in which the individual is beholding. That's right. You know, right? So the more trustworthy the object is, if I'm giving the requisite amount of faith to that object. So in other words, I if I am exercising the virtue of faith, I'm giving the right amount of trust to the right source. Yeah. So if someone is supremely trustworthy like God, and I'm giving him supreme faith, I'm not going to be taken advantage of because I'm always going to have my faith rewarded. But if I give uh, a large amount of faith to an unworthy object, I will be let down. Yeah, and this is interesting because the Bible says uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Each has gone their own way. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, all of us have gone like sheep our own direction, right? Our tongues are 
a mess or mouse or a mess we speak vile vilely and you know right. all these things like that and and so are humans it begs a question right are humans good objects of faith <laughs> yeah not not really uh so what what we see jesus doing i think he's obviously our ultimate example is he entrusts a lot of responsibility to the people that are around him mm-hmm. but he never stakes his total total plan on them, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like he was looking at the apostles and he's saying, all of my hope is in you, (laughs) right? He's like, if you guys can't get it together, I'm, I'm done. You know, my whole message is going to go into non-existence. Jesus, it says in John, it says he knew what was in the heart of men. And this is interesting. This is interesting because Romans eight talked about God subjected all things in futility in Mm -hmm. hope, right? And meaning maybe what that passage is getting at, and maybe we can, we're unpacking Romans eight a little bit in this, in this, uh, study here or this time, but you know, this really interesting passage in Romans eight, you know, maybe what God is doing is the object, uh, the object that God's looking at, the father's looking at is the son. That's right. You know, is, is the one who will restore, right. You know, so the object, you know, uh, the father doesn't look to humans right to uh, give his faith yeah to give his you know trust. trust to right you know he literally subjects all things to futility right in hope he's looking at the son right to do the restorative work right where um, if god trusted us mm-hmm. he would be able to give up his sovereignty mm. right he would he would relinquish his sovereignty on the universe and say i trust you I trust you to do the right thing. God never does that because man is not a worthy object of trust. Mm. You know, but the son is right. The son, he says, I have the power to lay down my life and I have the power to pick it up. The father entrusts the son to do the right thing. Yeah. Uh, the, all the plans of God, the father of, as you put it, the restorative work of the Trinity was literally put on Jesus. If Jesus failed, that was it. Mm-hmm. God's the father's only hope was in the son. And the son's only hope was in the father. And it's interesting. God really can't be God unless he's putting his hope in God. That's right. Right? In yeah. in, in a sense, in himself, because he's the greatest good. Right. Right? So how can God, you know, subject all things to futility and hope of something other than God? Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> Which actually, uh, this, this very, is kind of a, very... it's a very intricate philosophical argument because mm-hmm. the argumentation of virtue is that all virtue is kind of like the distilled, uh, really pure character of God. So all the virtues that we're talking about, courage, honesty, humility, empathy, compassion. humility, compassion, all these Temperance. things are the distilled character of what we call godliness, Mm -hmm. which means that these are things that God does. And so if faith truly is a virtue, then God must exercise faith. But who would God exercise faith (laughs) in unless we have the doctrine of the Trinity? Right. Right. Yeah. So it's really, that's a, that's a real heavy, I mean, we, we kind of delved a little underground. (laughs) So we kind of went earthworm on everybody. (laughs) (laughs) We kind of went underground, but it really brings out, um, a lot of, it answers a lot of questions, Mm. you know, that, that of why Jesus is God. Right. And, and, uh, how he has to be God. Right. Or else God becomes, in a sense, uh, like a a worshiper 
right. of another deity. Right. You know? Putting his faith in an unworthy object. And an unworthy object, yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's very, very interesting. So um, Nina says, and I'm, ba- I'm on now Calvary Christian Fellowship's portal. Yeah, we're just, we're just all flipping over. through them, man. <laughs> we're, you know... Uh, some people might knock us, Peter, but no, <laughs> I'm just joking. Nina says, speaking of generations, do you think we are the last? Um, are we underestimating the end times? Um, like, are we the last generation? Yeah, yeah. She talks about, do you, uh, or, uh, or could be he too. Um, um, could we see flying cars, teleportation? Generation Z, uh, more LGBTQ, and possibly worse ugliness another hundred, uh, you know, thousand years um, if God tarries. So basically, the question is, you know, do you think we're in the last days? Uh, speaking of, uh, you know, this generation. Yeah, I believe we are, but I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. I, I believe we are, but I could be wrong. It's it's very possible that you're right, that the, the modern-day generation is the last generation, and they will see the Lord come back. But it's also possible that there will be more generations. And if the Lord tarries, who knows what kind of stuff we're going to see. Uh, whenever you read science fiction from like 100 years ago, 150 years ago, like H.G. Wells or Jules Verne or you know people like that, in some ways I think they overestimate mankind. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you watch uh, a more contemporary example that most people have seen is Back to the Future. Right. You, you watch Back to the Future that was made in the late 80s, predicting what 2015 was going to be like. In some ways, they were overestimating what we would create. Right. So, for instance, they had hover cars and things like that. Yeah. They were wrong about that. Yeah. You watch 2010. Right. You know, the sci-fi shows, right? Right. <laughs> you know, of, uh, you know, you're out in space and stuff like that. And yeah. you're like, uh, yeah. <laughs> 2010. Nope. Didn't exactly make it. But in some ways they underestimated what we would be capable of. So mm-hmm. for instance, you don't have anything like a cell phone in back to the future, uh, part two, where they're, they're going out and, that may sound small to you because you've just gotten so used to it. But think about that for a second. You have a supercomputer in your pocket right now. You can look things up. You can listen to things. You can access all sources of information on earth right now in seconds, mm. right? You can listen to the most amazing music that has ever been composed and created by mankind right now if you wanted to. You could read the most incredible literature you want on that phone. You could watch whatever TV you want. You could access parts of the world, news, right? These are amazing qualities. And so in a lot of ways, they underestimated what we would be able to create, but in some ways they overestimated. So I, I have no idea. Are we going to see flying cars in the next 50 years? Maybe, you know, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, that'd be, that'd be cool, but we'll see. Yeah. And I would just remember that Hebrews talks about us being in uh, the last days. Mm-hmm. I mean, from the Bible perspective, we're in the last days from the time of Jesus's ascension right. into heaven, and um, this is the last chapter. That yeah, this is the last chapter. So it is the latter days, right? Um, you know, what are we going to see next? I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm shocked. I don't see anybody walking on moon on the moon or anything. I heard that happened back in the day. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, staged, man. But, it's uh, all uh, yeah, <laughs> totally. I, I'm starting to believe that, bro. It's like, dude, I, I mean, I, I was expecting in my lifetime to right. see someone walk on the moon at least, or right. someone 
go out in space Some and Mars, like, yeah, yeah, hang out, yeah, hang out on something. But no, nothing, <laughs> no, no planetary visitations at all. Yeah. So I, I've kind of, you know, I'm an old Twilight Zone fan, and I feel kind of let down. Like, <laughs> like you know, come on, I mean? humanity. <laughs> yeah, like what happened, man? I thought we were supposed to blast off somewhere, <laughs> you know. But uh, you know, nope, <laughs> it's just not happening. You know. Well, now that we have Space Force. Everything's going to happen, man. <laughs> now, that we, now that the government's in control, it's all going to work out. So we'll see. Yeah, I don't know. So let's let's stay on this area. Um, can a Christian be pro-life? This is from, uh, it looks like Horatio. Um, can a Christian be pro-life personally but pro-choice politically? No, uh, you're totally going. <laughs> so um, it's like... This is this is something that's very interesting. The word the word politic it, it actually refers to the polis, which means the community. So in other what, words, what does it refer to? The polis, which is the community, is the Greek word for community. Okay. So when we say political, uh, some people don't know what they're saying. They just think about stuff happening in Washington D.C. Political just means community, your local community. That's why we have local governance. So what it means to be political, to have a political belief, is to say, what things do I want implemented at the communal level? Mm -hmm. So to be personally pro-choice, I mean, I'm sorry, to be personally pro-life, that's a political stance. You're not just saying, I personally would never get an abortion. You are saying, I am pro the preservation of unborn life. So whatever, whatever you are individually, you are collectively. That's right. You That's would believe thinking. that this should be the, the values that the community reflects. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it is a political view because you should want the community to do it. So it would be kind of like this. It would be like if I said, well, you know, personally, I would never rape someone. But – I'm for it. I'm for it. Like, I'm politically. okay politically <laughs> if people are raping other people and we don't really do anything about it. That that doesn't really make much sense because if you personally think that it's best to not do something or have it done to you, then you should want that to be affected within your community. If you don't, then either your views are wrong or you're selfish. So in other words, if you think that something's good and you're not going to actually push for it to be present with part of the collective part of the collective or at least want it to a certain extent so uh, let me give a caveat here personally i like the fact that christianity teaches that adultery is a sin and it's wrong i like the idea that in the old testament there were sharp and severe consequences for adultery including the death penalty i think that's good would i fight for that in a political context and the answer is no i wouldn't the reason why is because I also believe that there is a liberty that people are afforded to reject the Christian tenets and the Christian morality. I want a large part of it to be implemented, but there's a large part of it that I don't. Now, someone who would challenge me and they would say, well, isn't that the same thing as being pro-life personally but pro-choice politically? And the answer for me anyway is no. The reason why is because what I'm talking about adultery, I'm talking about a sin that is great. It's grave for a wife or a husband to cheat on their partner, but it's not something that everyone can ethically agree with who isn't from a Christian worldview. However, when it comes to the preservation of life, that's very different. I think the government, if the government has any role within our community, it is the preservation of life, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So if the government isn't willing to protect the life of the most vulnerable, what's the purpose of government? 
right? Why even have it if it's not going to protect life? So I, I don't even think you could have a political philosophy unless it incorporates the preservation of life. Mm. There's a lot to go into with that. Right. Yeah, I know that that's a heavy one, but it's yeah. a heavy one. Let's just go into it for another hour. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, because yeah. it's like what what other right matters if you don't have a right to live? Yeah. Right. There, there are no rights that matter unless you have the right to live. Yeah. Which is good. That's got to be kind of the starting place. Right. Right. That's what you're saying. Exactly. The other ones you're saying are can can be a little more. Right. You could have more uh, flexibility, flexibility because they're not a fundamental right. They're mm-hmm. not foundational. You don't really build. You could build on them, but you could also take them away and you still maintain your base rights. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's some thoughts that I have towards that. I've written some blogs that are along these lines um, that I think of right now. And um, I just always think that whatever you think is right in your individual rights Mm. to do um you have to you have to look at what if everybody did that right and then that's a measuring tool to whether something is right or wrong yeah um so if i believe in that i should be i can be a polygynist Mm -hmm. well if i that means i have many wives right well then i should i should be able to look at the collective and say okay that that's not just good for me individually but that's also got to be good for the collective. Right. So everybody else has the same right as I do. Right. And what if everybody chooses to, to take that right? <laughs> yeah. You know, what would the world be like if everybody was polygynist? Right. And what if everybody was, you know, what if everybody took that perspective and said, okay, I'm this. This is how I'm identified. Right. Well, what if everybody was that? What would be the ramifications? Right. Anyway, guys, we ran out of time. Talk to you later. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.